am Brenda. And hi, I'm Amber. And this is the Minority Millennial Money Podcast. The contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice. And neither Amber nor I, nor Minority Millennial Money, is engaged in the provision of legal, tax, or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and tax accountants, regarding the legal, tax, and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. everyone to another episode of Minority Millennial Money. Today we have a guest who is a recent listener who also heard me on the Bigger Pockets podcast and started listening to us. So I want to give her a chance to introduce herself. Thank you both so much for having me. My name is Claudia. Um, I live in Southern California. I live in Orange County. I'm a SoCal native um, and have lived here basically my entire life except for a couple years in college up north. Um, and yeah, I heard Brenda's story on Bigger Pockets, and little did I know that she had, had a project and a podcast of her own. Um, and I was really inspired because it was something that really resonated with me, specifically your background, Brenda. Um, and then once I got onto your guys' pod, hearing Amber's perspective as you know, two women of color, um, breaking down all the norms around fire, early retirement, financial independence. I just was really fascinated with what you guys were doing. And so I felt compelled to reach out and tell you what a, what a wonderful job you're doing. And that's how I ended up here. Awesome. That's so exciting. Yeah. So are you on the fire journey right now? Or tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're doing right now, maybe what profession you're in. Yeah. So I work in sales. I work for a furniture manufacturer. Um, so I've been doing that basically for the last five years um, since I graduated from college. And as far as where I am on the fire journey, I literally discovered all of this not more than three months ago. So it's very, wow. very like super new. Um, but there were a couple of things that I already kind of had laid the foundation for in terms of, you know, like investing in my 401k and just generally saving, trying to pay down student loans and all of the other debts. And, um, you know, I got married about a year and a half ago. So that definitely changed a lot of my finances now that it's really the two of us. That's just how we're doing things pretty jointly. And we really started thinking about what we wanted our lives to look at for the next 20, 30 years. Um, and neither of us really likes the idea of working until we're 65 and that traditional path, um, we both also feel like we maybe were a little bit too um, quick to spend a lot of money or get into a lot of debt for undergrad. Um, we both do really like higher ed. And I personally, it's something that I would like to explore for myself. Um, but it can seem so far out of reach when you already took on a mountain of debt for undergrad. And you're like, how the hell would I, excuse my language, how, how would I fund this moving forward, right? Um, if I wanted to do that, something like this again, and thinking about having kids and growing your family, all of those things. So that's where we are in a nutshell, but I can certainly dive into more detail. Are you both first-generation college students? And did you, are you actively paying off student loan debt? Like, are, is that one of your major kind of debt burdens? Yeah, totally. I mean, as far as um, 
first generation, I am, um, and my family, my siblings are. For my husband, his father actually um, did go through, you know, like college. He actually has his PhD. He's very accomplished and um, is definitely somebody I really look up to. Um, and in terms of the financial aspect of what, you know, education resulted in for us, yeah, for me, it was quite a bit of debt. I have, a, I think when I graduated, I had about $120,000 of debt, um, which was a lot. Like I nearly passed out <laughs> when I saw those numbers. And in the five years since then, I've paid off um, about $65,000 of debt. Wow. We're sitting at about, yeah, um, at about 50. And, you know, something interesting that's come up around student debt with peers of mine is, you know, if your parents took out loans to help you pay for college while you were there, did you make an agreement with them about who was going to pay off those loans after, right? And I I agreed to do that with, and my folks did absolutely everything they could. And I'm so grateful to them for, you know, the sacrifices that they made. but if you had told me that I would be paying between $1,200 and $1,500 a month, I would have been like, this is not something that I want to take on. Right. Right. Um, so that's something that I always caution younger people about. I have a younger brother who's a freshman at Davis and he is not making any of the same mistakes I did. Um, so that's kind of where we are. My husband has like a negligible amount of student loan debt, like 7,000 left. Um, and he's, he's about five years older than me. So he's a little bit further ahead in all of those things. Gotcha. Did you go to a private school or why did it end up being so much? I went to public school. I went to UC Berkeley. Part of it was I had to take kind of a reduced course load. Um, I'd been dealing with some health issues and, um, I ended up being there for five years. I did do all of the things that I wanted to do. I studied abroad. Like I really did do everything that I wanted to do. I did work. Um, but it was never really enough. And, you know, public school tuition in, in California, it can seem affordable at about 15000 especially compared to other places. But living expenses can be something that people overlook. It is very expensive to live in Northern California. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that was, I think, a big chunk of it. That was maybe most of it. Okay. Gotcha. Better. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was like, public school, at least in Texas, like when I went yeah. to undergrad, and you said you graduated five years ago, so you're a bit younger than us. Um, but when I went to undergrad, it was about 4000 per semester for tuition. And then probably about the same for like living expenses. So you were looking at about 16000 a year total in room, like tuition, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for you, especially in Northern California, would have been a lot more. So that's understandable. And then what, what got you into sales? I'm actually, I'm so curious. You know, I, I date people in sales. <laughs> um, so the, the biggest factor for me getting a job after college was I cannot afford to live in Northern California. I'm moving back to SoCal to live with my folks. And I wanted to do something where I could have a higher income, you know, earning potential quickly because paying off my student debt was a really, really big priority for me. Um, And I'd found this role as like, you know, like an inside sales rep to start. And it was a lot of grunt work and it was really tough at first, but I just stuck with it. And I've been fortunate enough to have really good mentors and have gone to a place where I feel comfortable with, with my salary and like I can make things work and I don't have to be, you know, like counting every penny all the time. 
Um, so that independence. And then I would say the biggest thing that has kept me in sales is just the flexibility to really manage my business and the way that I do things, the way I interact with my mm. clients, having a really high level of autonomy, being able to schedule my days the way that I think works best for me. I hear from a lot of my friends what their work lives are like, and it's, I couldn't imagine just being in an office all day long and like sitting next to my boss. Like, I don't, I love my coworkers. And I love my boss. I like having the flexibility too. So that's why I've stayed where I am and doing what I do. So did you have that flexibility pre-pandemic? You always have worked from home or what do you mean by that? You don't have to go to an office? Right. It's a lot of being out in the field and meeting with clients. And so, you know, you kind of schedule things like demos, um, introductory meetings kind of at your own discretion. So I would have days where I would just, you know, book meetings out in the field, days where I would work from home or days where I would go into the office so I could have some focus time or where I needed to pull products from the showroom. Um, so just being able to change it up and do something different every day, I've realized for me is, is very important. I get bored very fast. So, um, yeah. Is sales lucrative? I I don't know. Like what is, um, what could someone make in in sales? I mean, me personally, right now I'm about 115 on track earnings. So assuming I hit all of my like bonuses and all of my numbers, that's what I would finish at. And historically I've finished above my sales goal with, you know, we also get like a commission on everything we sell above our goal. So the earning potential, it's not that it's, you know, totally limitless, but it is, you know, pretty, pretty high. And I mean, I've had colleagues um, and, you know, like industry partners who have made upwards of 300K a year. So it really is, <laughs> I'm Spain telling you. Went, wow, right now. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, one thing I will say about like the commercial furniture industry is that the longer you stay in it, the more money you can make, like the higher your ceiling gets, right? Because there's a lot of expertise that comes with like being in the industry for so long um, and building up those, that clientele, right? You work with a big, you know, multinational law firm on a project here in LA, they're probably gonna want you to work on San Francisco too, you know? Um, Those kinds of things really go a long way. So what kind of um, college degree do you have to get to do sales? Well, I mean, I guess maybe I went a more non-traditional path. I studied political economy and Spanish and Portuguese, and I don't use my degrees very often in my work. Um, but I, I mean, most of the people that I work with had like degrees in marketing or business administration, communications, uh, kind of, you know, the more general like humanities. Mm-hmm. That makes degrees. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, and I think there's something to be said for those liberal arts degrees um, in this kind of in this kind of setting, right? It worked out, um, and I don't know about Amber, but I can't sell stuff. Like I <laughs> not be good at it. I love telling people what to do, and I don't have to sell anything. <laughs> so I sell a couple things for three hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> right? Amber's like, I can get behind that. <laughs> sell some things. Uh, true true um but no I think that's a good perspective to to see and to know that you know for people who maybe 
have a degree in a liberal art or humanities that you, there is this avenue if you apply yourself and stick it out, right? Because you said it was a little hard at the beginning, but you stuck yeah. it out and now you're in a position where you're comfortable. So say your student loan debt is paid off and uh, you're at, you know, net worth zero and what what are your goals long term you and your husband um do you, you said you don't want to work forever so is there an age at which you'd be more comfortable retiring like 55 50 yeah we've talked about between 50 and 55 we think that by then that'll be probably the point where our hopefully eventual kids will be nearing the end of um you know like grade school and you know going off to doing whatever they're going to do as adults so um, that's kind of what we were thinking. And I, I did want to like run some numbers by you to see what you guys thought about just our general position that we're in and maybe what we could maximize and do better. Yeah, sure. Go for okay. it. Okay. All right. So, um, between our, just like our general savings account, we have about 20 K in general, like brokerage investment accounts. We have about 33 in our 401ks, we have about 203000 um, And then, again, going back to kind of like the debts, we're at, our combined debt would be about fifty-seven for student loans, $57,000. Um, and then I guess the last like piece of relevant numbers would be on a monthly basis, what we, our take-home pay ends up being right about 9000 and all of our like recurrent monthly things like, you know, rent, all fixed expenses, basically utility subscriptions, car insurance, groceries, all of that stuff, um, including like gifts and, you know, miscellaneous going out things ends up being about 5,300, which leaves us, I think somewhere between three to 4,000 to kind of save. Um, so over the last couple of months, we've gone from saving anywhere from about a thousand to 2000 to just last month, we hit 4,000 in one month in savings, which was our best savings month yet. And we think that we could, you know, hopefully stick to that. Um, one kind of short-term goal that we have is to buy a home. Um, housing prices in California are really, really high. It's not a good market, as you all know. Yes, I've heard you ladies talk about it recently. I think, well, it was recent for me, but I think it was an older episode um, about, I know Amber talked a little bit about owning property as well as you, Brenda, um, and what that was like and that common misconception of always viewing things as an investment, as like a, that has a cash opportunity and how that's not really the best frame of mind to go into buying a house. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big picture of where we are. Um, what are your general impressions and thoughts? Go ahead. So I, I did the quick math and your net positive net worth is 199,000, which is awesome. Um, that's including your savings, your brokerage and your 401ks all together is 256,000. And then I took off the student loan 57 and I got 199. Let's just say that you, 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 you said you bring home about 9K home together, you need, 5,300 on your bills, but I just rounded up to 6,000 so that we can say you have a clean 3,000 a month left over. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to buy a house. What are you thinking, Amber? As far as 
what her goals are for well so so you know there's nothing wrong with wanting to buy a house now if you're in socal and you're looking at like a decent area we're talking like 700 1.5 million okay you can tell it's, us what you're aiming for yeah it's pretty crazy out here um where we live right now we're renting a townhouse that is our rent's like 2660 a month and I know that other townhouses in our area have sold for between 650 and 700 um which is way up there for what I thought you know I would be buying a house for but you um, buy a house right or do you want to buy a townhouse we would rather buy a house yeah um, but I haven't even really explored like what that would actually look like because it's really hard to even put myself in the frame of mind of like, oh, we can we can live in Southern California. I'm not even so sure that that's something we want to do long term. You know, it's very attractive to want to go elsewhere. And it would be, you know, obviously job permitting for my husband. I know that he could do it. His job's totally fine with him moving. But for me, it would be a different story. So, so I have a question. How do you feel about putting the house thing on hold and <laughs> completely out of debt. So that's something that I wanted to ask you about. Like, what would be the benefits to that? One concern that I have is that housing prices would just continue to go up. I know that's not actually sustainable in reality in perpetuity, but it definitely seems like it's going to be the case for a little while, especially out here. Um, and I do see it from the perspective of like, okay, whatever student loan debt we're going to be accountable for on a monthly basis, that is not going to go away until it's fully paid off. And so that's going to be like a liability that we're always going to have. And so maybe that's the point that you're trying to make, Brenda, but if there were other factors, I would be interested in hearing. I'm just trying to think at 3000 a month, how quickly can you get rid of 57000 And it's mm. like... It's like less than two years. And but then Brenda, you gotta think about it. They have to put a down payment on the house. So and if you're trying to buy a house for a million dollars, I mean, I don't are either of you in the military or have you been in the military in the past? No, neither of us. So you're looking at putting, you know You're you're buying them a very expensive house. Yeah, five percent down. <laughs> I mean, would you wanna put twenty percent down on the house? I'm not sure that we could do that in a reasonable amount of time you know what I mean well I think that's the question so like if you're trying to buy a house within the next two years let's say you want to buy let's say one million dollars um you know let's you need two hundred thousand if you're going to do twenty percent right so if if that means you need to put two hundred thousand dollars essentially in like a high yield savings account if you're gonna buy soon so if if the goal is to buy a house, you have to start saving for that basically right now. Um, you're going to need $200,000. And that doesn't, the down payment is not even including closing costs. costs. You may want new furniture. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm assuming you're going to want at least a three bedroom house because you, you mentioned you want kids. So three to four bedrooms. Um, you may need new furniture. You know, I don't know if there are going to be any like, initial things that you're going to have to want to do to the house, like painting it, or um, I know when a lot of people move into a home, they want to make it, they want to personalize it. And so they might mm-hmm. want 
different fixtures or do, you know they want to change certain things about it and mm -hmm. so those costs too so you're, you're going to want to at least I would say on the safe side, 225,000 to 250,000. Um, and so if the goal is to buy a house. I mean, you basically have to essentially pay the minimum on your loans. If the goal is to buy a house in yes. Southern California. Yes. Now, I think there are options. I'm on team don't buy a house in Southern California. <laughs> but My husband's on that team as well. So <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, it just doesn't appeal to me. I mean, I, I was just there last week. Yeah, yeah. I remember. <laughs> I and it. so, and like his house is beautiful, but it's not a million dollar house. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not, you're not paying for the house. You're paying to be in Southern California. And so it's just not worth it to me, but that's just my value system. And, and I know how hard it is for Southern California people to leave. Although they seem to be coming to Austin in droves, so maybe it's getting easier. Um, but I mean, like my house in North Austin two years ago was two hundred and forty thousand. I mean, that's literally mm -hmm. what we're talking about. You putting down as a down payment. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and I. What are the other options? I guess. Are is it even possible for you to move out of Southern California based on your jobs? It is. Yeah. I mean, my husband, he's fully remote and they are allowed to work from anywhere in the country where they already have employees. And Texas actually happens to be one of those states and the top contender for my husband anyway. Uh, funnily enough, outside of Austin and San Antonio is where he wants to live. Awesome. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I'm, I'm super open to it. I've lived here for so long and I really myself living just in SoCal for the rest of my life. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back one day. Maybe we won't. Um, but it's it's definitely on the table. And I guess one of my goals of this conversation was really to see, like, how feasible would it even be for us to be here? Like, is this even a good decision for us to try to stay in SoCal? House or no house? House or renting in, in perpetuity, you know? And it's really hard to continue to make that case. I mean... I don't think there's anything wrong with renting forever. I mean, Amber and I have talked about it on the podcast. Like mm -hmm. I'm renting right now, even though I have the rental properties, she's renting right now. Um, you can always invest that difference, right? So like, let's say that you gave up, you, you were set on staying in Southern California and the cost of that was to not buy a house, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, rent's going to go up, but you're always going to have a margin and all that money that you would put down now is free. Mm -hmm. right free to be invested or whatever so let's say you're like i'm hell-bent on socal i'm staying here and i'm willing to give up the idea of buying a house well then those three thousand dollars a month now you're like my eyes on the prize of getting debt free so student loans go away first and then in a year and a half you're student loan free and those three thousand dollars can literally just go straight into the market assuming you're maxing out your 401k and your roth ira and it's mm -hmm. putting $3,000, $36,000 into the market per year. Yep. Like that's really great return. Like that's almost equivalent to having this, you know, glorified equity in a home. In a home that's going to cause you problems because all the homes in Southern California are old. <laughs> There's no construction the way there is here, right? No. Um, I really, one thing I just took away from what you said, and I really like what you said about this glorified equity um, that exists within buying a home and owning a home. And 
I couldn't have said it better myself. I've never heard anybody put it that way, but it's true. I mean, you guys were mentioning how like houses in Southern California don't look like million dollar houses. My parents' house was built in 1920. It's somehow worth a million dollars today. It doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't make sense. So it does feel like I need to kind of get over this idea of like staying here, you know? Um, mm. One of those things that I try to like rationalize, I think. And it's kind of nice sometimes to have people who are knowledgeable kind of nudge you in what you kind of already know is the right direction. <laughs> Well, and you have to consider, like, are you buying a house to just keep up with everyone else in Southern California who has a house? Or do you genuinely want a house? Right. Right? Like, are you buying a house just to be able to say that you own somewhere? You don't own the house. You own the loan. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> until your loan's paid off, and then your your housing cost is still going to be high in California in 30 years after you pay the house off and the house is 130 years old. Yeah. So I don't know, Amber, what do you think? Am I being too harsh? So, I mean, I would vote for either wrenching and staying in Southern California in perpetuity or um, moving to Texas and buying there. Because if you move to Texas, you can buy a house for a reasonable rate. You can buy a huge house for a reasonable rate. You can buy a house with the 20000 you have in savings right now. Yes. And notwithstanding that, you could just still throw money into your brokerage. Because I think that's the goal here at this point. You have a lot of money in retirement. So if I were you, I would be throwing money in my brokerage. Um, uh-huh. That includes having your Roth IRA in your brokerage account. Okay. Yeah, because I think the only way for it to make sense for you to buy a house would be in a lower cost of living area where the house is less than 500000 and you still have a margin, right? Like your mortgage isn't going to be so high that now you can no longer invest outside of your retirement accounts because you're not going to be able to access those retirement accounts till you're 59 and a half. And you said you want to retire around 50 to 55. Right. So by buying a big house, not even a big house, by buying an expensive house in Southern California, you're robbing yourself of the ability to be able to retire early, essentially. Right. So it's either or. It's either buy the million dollar home or retire early, I think, is what we're saying. Because you're going to need to pound money into your brokerage account in order to, because your retirement, the money you have in retirement is great, but you're not going to be able to access it until what, Brenda, 59 and a half or 65? Right. So, So you want to retire at 50, so you need to fund essentially 10 years of income into your brokerage. So you you basically need to start putting a lot of money into your brokerage in order to get 10 years worth. And if you get a mortgage, okay, say you have enough, say you had enough to get a mortgage in Southern California today, that mortgage would probably be around $4,000 a month, yep. right? Which now is 1,500 more than you're paying. Yep. So that, that takes you from 3,000 that's free per month to 1,500. Yep. Repair. So repairs, all the things that come with home ownership, the HOA, if, you know, if you're in an HOA, just all the things that are going to come with it, you're going to have no extra money. Yeah, zero. Right. And, and your loans won't be paid anywhere. off. Loans won't be paid off because you'll be saving for your down payment. So you'll still have $57,000 in the student loans. Um, cause even if you pay the minimum, you're still incurring interest. Right. Right. 
So how do you feel? I feel like we've kind of. <laughs> no, I got, I got quiet, but it's like, it's good quiet. Um, I hadn't really thought about it as like an either or. And to me, the question, the answer to the question is so easy. I would much rather be able to retire early than own a home in Southern California or even rent in Southern California. I mean, neither of those two things is as important to me as us being able to retire early. So good. Kind of like an easy decision. I mean, you, you guys probably know this if, if you're close to your family. It's one of those things where it's hard to leave because everyone's here and all of that kind of stuff. That true. Um, that's like one of those aspects that you don't always capture when you're writing, you know, numbers and dollars and cents down on paper. But um, it's also not really about my family. It's about. Well, so. that and, and you're going to have the disposable income and the time to to go visit them and to go be with them. Right. Because you can live down the street. But if you're working all the time to pay for your expensive house and your student loans, then is your quality of life really that much better just because you live down the street from them? That's a really good point. It's not, I, I would agree. <laughs> it's a leading question, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. And I know how it is like in Southern California, if you want to have kids and you want to be in an area with a good school district and then the houses are more expensive. So you're kind of like locking yourself into always having to work. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem worth it. I would agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's something for y'all to talk about and maybe it's just like, we're going to pay off the student loans and when, and when the student loans are paid off and we're completely debt free, we'll see how we feel. Maybe we want to take on a mortgage in Southern California, or maybe we want to go buy a house for a third of the price in Texas and, and start life with kids there. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be good to set a definite goal and then be like, the decision doesn't have to be made until that's, that goal is met. And that goal to me is paying off the student loans. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, with, with the um, student loan interest rates being at zero, that's what we've been kind of chipping away at basically. Oh. Pandemic. Um, so we've been able to make like some, some pretty good progress on that. Um, and we really did like, especially we started off with my husband's because his had a couple higher, um, interest rate when it kicks back in um and mine were a little bit lower so we started there but I think that that is a really good goal and even like every time that the number gets lower in terms of what we owe I just feel like my shoulders are getting Better. so I think that it's also the kind of the goal that would make the biggest difference and just my outlook and the way that I feel about where we are financially well and you um, said 12 to 1500 dollars a month that not having that payment brings your three to four thousand dollars free to more like five or six thousand dollars free a month and then you can just rapidly save up a down payment if your goal is to buy a house somewhere else you know and, and i i just want people to detach themselves from this idea that they have to own a home right like you don't have to own a home and you can still be wealthy like you can still yeah build wealth. It's not impossible. It's actually quite simple. And you save yourself a lot of headaches because you can always call the landlord. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, So Amber talked about this quite a bit, I think, um, about just like the convenience, right, of like the building that you live in and all of that. Um, she loves to call maintenance. Would do if I had maintenance guys. So... <laughs> 
Um, no, but how was it for you all like detaching from that notion of this glorified equity and like keeping up with the Joneses on those like milestones of buying a house and whatnot? I mean, for me, I, I already bought a house. So I feel like I've already had that experience. And that mm-hmm. sort of knocked it out of me when I realized how much money I was putting in there and just like yeah. how little wealth I was accumulating um, during those years. Literally, mm-hmm. as soon as I sold the house, I immediately started accumulating wealth. Mm-hmm. And so for me, everyone that I know who owns a home has no money. Um, at least my people my age, obviously, I don't know, you know, about everyone in the world. Yeah. But the people that are in, that I know who own a home, they don't have very much money. And I've heard of people even taking out more loans on their home to, to pay for more things. Repairs, remodels. Exactly. And so it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem lucrative. It's just me though right now. So obviously if I had kids, a husband, I needed a bigger space, depending on what area I was living in, it may make more sense to buy a house. But at this moment where I could just throw money into my brokerage, it just makes more sense. So I don't feel, um, like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't feel like I need to own something to feel like I have a self-worth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. It's like dissociating your self-worth from the idea of being a homeowner because, um, and, and I, and I, I need to link to this in the show notes, that video, that YouTube video that shows like two brothers, one of them buys a home, the other one invests in the market and rents his whole life. And they actually end up having the same net worth like after 30 years. But like the one who bought a home had to deal with all the home issues, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and and likewise for renting out, like I'm fortunate in that I haven't had any major issues as a landlord, mm-hmm. but you know, with time there comes opportunity for that to happen. And, I, and I'm prepared for that to happen, but that's just a reality of, being able to enjoy the appreciating value of the home. Um, and I, I, we're not against you buying a home, but in the situation that you're in, it just doesn't seem like it would really match up with the goal of retiring early. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I guess like the retiring early goal, definitely a newer goal of mine. Whereas the owning a house or buying a house, that's just that's just what you do, right? Like that's that's just been there through things that I've seen, things that I've heard. Both of my brothers have bought homes in the last um, couple of years, my older brothers. So I think that's a part of it. You know, they're married, they have kids as well. So I think there is a lot of like, I have to ask myself, we have to ask ourselves, like, is this really what we want? And what are the reasons that we want that? Um, And kind of too, like in the future, like having a family, like everyone like immediately wants to have like a huge house to have a family. And I'm like, we, we could literally go to Disney world for two weeks every year. Like if we just lived in a smaller place, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. not that I've never been to Disney world. So when I have kids, I'm going to use it as an excuse to take myself. Um, <laughs> but I just think about all the opportunity costs that people pay to have the thing you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. when it may not be what you really want. If it's what you really want, then by all means, go for it. But if to be able to maybe pay for private school for your kids instead of sending them to public school, then you live maybe in a smaller place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like everything comes at a cost and 
I mean, I think you guys are in a great position. You could have a ton of money in your retirement accounts. You have some in brokerage. You have an emergency fund of 20K, right? Um, so it's not like you're unstable. You're just kind of at a crossroads. And it's not like it's your fault. You can't afford a home in Southern California. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think just like streamlining the goals and finding the correct order for them is really mm. our main focus for right now with, you know, weighing the, do we buy a house and move? Do we pay off our loans first or do we you know, move and buy a house elsewhere or stay here and rent? Sorry, because I repeated myself. Um, so that's kind of where we are. And I think it's pretty clear to me now from this conversation that the student loans would make a really big difference. So if, we could just keep, you know, knocking those out, especially in the next couple months before things go back into full repair. Right. It would make a really huge difference. Maybe reevaluating how much we're putting into our savings so that we can put a little bit more there. Um, yeah, as long as we have the emergency fund. Every- I don't think. Yeah, I don't think you should put anything more in your savings. I think okay. me, my main goals would be to pay off those student loans and to put way more money in your brokerage. Because your brokerage, the the return you're going to get on your brokerage is going to be high. Um, We talked about on this one episode, I think I got 19 or 20% last year. So that's Ah. your main way to accumulate wealth. So as much money as you can to put in your brokerage, given your situation that you want to buy a house within the next few years somewhere, um, I would try to pay off those loans as one number one priority, because since you don't have any unforeseen costs yet, Meaning mm-hmm. when you buy a house, there's going to be all types of things that are going to come up where that extra money might be gone or it might be limited. So while you're renting, it's good if you paid off your loans because you can make sure that you can put the highest amount in there to get those loans gone. Um, but the, but my number one or number two priority would be to put money in your brokerage. But I think $20,000 is a good emergency fund. What do you think, Brenda? Yeah, I think so too. And and just to not stop investing because your goal is to retire early. So if you have 3K left over every month, throw 2K at the loans. That's an extra about $500 a month, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you throw $2,000 at the loan, you'll have those paid off in 28 months. Yep. So that's two years and four months. Mm-hmm. And the other thousand of the 3,000 can go in your brokerage. And so Every month, a thousand's going in brokerage, two thousand's going to student loans, and in twenty-eight months, you have another twenty-eight thousand in brokerage at least because mm-hmm. that's going to compound interest, yeah. and you're debt-free. Yeah, and then and you then, you, then you can start looking at houses in San Antonio. <laughs> I'll have to let you know, Brenda. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love I love going to look at model homes. <laughs> I, we haven't started yet, but that sounds like a really good time. I mean, Um, you're, you're not going to be rejected for a loan with the student loans that you have, right? You're not going to be rejected for a mortgage. They'll give you a mortgage. It's just like, do you really want a mortgage on top of a 12 or $1,500 student loan payment? Like it's just going to tie up your money. Totally. Because it's one of those things like either it or it's outstanding like you're gonna up that money every month like clockwork so I think getting it off off of our backs would make a huge huge difference um totally and then to just be debt free for the rest of your life I mean yeah yeah I mean one of the bigger questions you already answered for me was about you know what is logistically like where does that money for retirement early come from 
right? Like the money that we would be living off of during early retirement. And now it makes sense to me that with that higher investing in the brokerage accounts, because it's a higher yield, that's really where it is. Um, that was my biggest like question mark that I had around this entire fire movement because I, I've you know read up on the 4% rule and all of that. And I was just like, okay, but well you can't access that money until you're, you know, 59 and a half. So how do we make, how do we bridge that gap between, you know, 50 and 59 and a half or however many years it is that we're going to be early? And you're not even 30, right? So you have 20 years. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll be 28 next week. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you have 22 years to invest, even if all you did was a thousand more dollars, you'd have to, ca- you'd have to do the calculation. You know, if, if in 22 mm-hmm. years you need to have, let's say you end up living in San Antonio and you guys can live on 80 K a year, you might need like 2.5 million, something like that. So that 2.5 million, I mean, that can be saved in 22 years. Oh yeah. Way more. You, you'll have way more than that. And your income will go up. It sounds like. Yeah. So just, I mean, it's very possible, you know, and yeah. I think about too, like, even if you got, what if you guys were to just move, move sooner rather than later and just rent something in a lower cost of living area, and then you have more money to throw at the loans and then you pay them off faster. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, that's actually something that's in rent right now. That's something that you, <laughs> I literally just thought of like not two minutes ago because our lease is up um, in January and we've been talking a lot about like, okay, what is, you know, this clock is ticking. We like this place, but I'm sick of paying 2660. Like this is insane. Um, and like, what's our next move, you know? And my husband has said similar to, similarly to what Brenda said, we could buy us with that 20 K we have right now, you know, um, if we just moved somewhere else. And so I think more and more it's looking like those types of moves align more with my goals long-term. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. Brenda brought up a good point, like moving to a low cost and just renting for two years or one year. If you got, you know, a two bedroom, two bath in Austin, how much would that, or in- It's not going to be 2,600. I mean, if you were, if you were serious about San Antonio, the cost of living is even lower there than in Austin. You could get a, you could get a two bedroom apartment for 1,400, 1,500. Okay. Yeah. You're saving an additional thousand dollars per month. You have no unforeseen costs. So that's another thousand. So you could put 3,000 to loans per month and 3,000 to your brokerage per month, right? Well, you'd, you'd do, you would, you would have 4,000 free a month. So you could do two and two. 5,000. Yeah, I guess I was, I was going, I was saying that she had 3,000 free per month right now, but she has closer to four. So yeah, I mean, you could either invest or pay off, invest more or you pay off your debt more quickly, right? So you'd Mm -hmm. only be paying 2,600 in rent for seven more months. And then Mm -hmm. you could, you know, if y'all don't have kids yet, you could, you can live in a one bedroom apartment. (laughs) Brenda. Yeah. That's really pushing it. (laughs) No, it's not. Trust me. We've only been living here for like a year and a half now. And before that we lived in a one bed, one bath, tiny in a bad neighborhood, really cheap. Like we, we, we did it so that we got it for the wedding that we wanted, you know, and we did it and no regrets because you can't go back. But, um, 
Yeah. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where that kind of sacrifice is definitely one that we've made and I think would be comfortable making again. Yeah. I mean, it's, you. well, he works from home, but you most likely won't. So it's like, right. if it's towards something, it's worth like one year. And I mean, I live in 800 square feet and I'm fine. And Amber lives in a tiny place too, exactly. but that's just because it's Hawaii. Um so lucky, Amber. I, God, I totally <laughs> forgot that you're out there. Oh. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you you have great options. And you brought up a great point about, you know, not doing just what everybody does, right? Um, it's a good, it, it can be a good investment, right? It's not always a good investment to have a home. And everybody forgets to mention all the troubles that come with owning a home. Yeah, no kidding. So like uh, my boyfriend, we had that big snowstorm here in Texas and his water tank, which is in the attic, um, burst and flooded his entire second floor and like the whole drywall is, you know, ruined and it is now end of May. This happened in the middle of February, but everybody's been booked out for months because so many people had damage. So like there are parts of this home that don't have baseboards, there's no carpet in some of it. And it's like, if you had a landlord, like that would have been fixed a long time ago. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's just things that you don't foresee that come with home ownership. Um, he's having to argue with the insurance companies about the cost of the repairs. It's a lot of headache. Um, and it's a great home, you know, and it has appreciated well, but you, that appreciation and equity comes at a price. I don't, I, and I've, I've said this on the real estate episode and on the passive income episode, real estate is not 100% passive. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see you in San Antonio in 2020. All right. <laughs> Thank you both so, so much. Keep doing your thing. You guys are really, really awesome. And you do such oh. a good job on the podcast. So. Thank you for your advice and help. Coming on. Of course, my pleasure. Take care. You too.